Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. I have so many mixed emotions about this episode. On the one hand, I am so excited to share this conversation because interviewing my guest, Rihanna Eisler, has been a dream of mine for a long time. And I feel so incredibly privileged and grateful to have had this conversation with her. On the other hand, this episode was recorded a couple of days after the Hamas attacks in Israel. And Rihanna and I were both very upset by the horrific stories coming out through the news and social media of brutal violence against women, children, men, families, elders, in particular the sexual violence on full display. And at the same time, I have in front of me, via Zoom, the great thinker, Rihanna Eisler, whose life's work has been to imagine a different way for humanity to live, who has created powerful alternatives, social, economic, emotional models for us all to use in order to avoid the exact scenario now playing out in Israel-Palestine. Rihanna is perhaps most widely known for her bestseller and classic The Chalice and the Blade, which revolutionized and upended the story of our cultural origins. Among her subsequent work includes The Real Wealth of Nations, which points the way to sustainable and equitable economy, the award-winning Tomorrow's Children, which recommends sweeping changes in education with a focus on cooperation, mutual aid, and creativity. And her latest work, Nurturing Our Humanity, provides a new understanding of human possibilities drawing from more than a dozen combined disciplines. A prolific researcher with over 500 scientific articles and publication, Dr. Eisler is founder and president of the Center for Partnership Studies, which is dedicated to research and education that provides a new perspective on our past, present, and possibilities for the future. Rihanna's work as a cultural historian and evolutionary theorist is celebrated across the world, She's received many, many, many honors and is included in the award-winning book Great Peacemakers as one of 20 leaders for world peace, along with Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King. And here is our conversation. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I was going to be able to interview you. Honestly, like, I'm a little bit starstruck. <laughs> My goodness, well, thank you, my dear. But I wanted to start just by acknowledging, you know, what's happening in Israel right now, which is, I'm sure, you're following, and it's very upsetting news out of Israel. Yes. Yeah. And it's very sort of related to what your work is about and my work is about as well. Yes. It's a sad it's very sad days watching what's happening there. But I wanted to talk about, there's so many things I can think of talking to you about because you have such a huge body of work and research and scholarship. But I wanted to kind of focus on the chalice and the blade because it was very, very formative for me. And it just kind of one of those, I mean, it's a classic, but 
It is one of those just truth-telling books that clears the fog off of everything and really establishes some some truisms that uh, have really held up. But also, of course, talk about where your work went from there. You are referred to, I know, as social systems scientist. And I want my listeners to learn a little bit about what inspired the chalice and the blade, but all this thinking around social system. Well, my passion for this work, as you probably know, goes back to my childhood as a child refugee with my parents from the Holocaust. And these were very traumatic experiences for me, but they led me to questions that I think many of us have asked at some point in our lives, which is, does it have to be that way? I mean, when I was young, I witnessed cruelty and destructiveness and violence. But I also witnessed something that my mother displayed, which I today call spiritual courage. And it's really not the courage as we've been taught to think about it, you know, to slay the dragon or kill the enemy, but the courage to stand up against injustice out of love. And my mother, Crystal Matt, recognized one of the Nazis who came and broke into our home and dragged my father away as a former errand boy of the business. And she got furious. She demanded how can you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. And by a miracle, she could have been killed, really, because a lot of Jewish people were killed that night. But she wasn't. And by a miracle, she did obtain his release. Of course, some money did pass hands. And by another miracle, we managed to escape at night from Vienna, where I was born. And my parents had been able to obtain a uh, landing permit from Cuba, one of only two places, Shanghai and uh, Cuba, where you could purchase these entry permits. And so we escaped. And the questions were, does it have to be this way? Does there have to be so much cruelty, violence, insensitivity, when, as I saw in my mother, we humans have a capacity for so much caring, so much creativity and consciousness. And it was these questions that my work really set out to answer. And you introduced me as a systems social scientist, and the emphasis is really on systems, because I soon realized that I could not answer these questions looking at human society cross-culturally, transhistorically, and through the lenses of conventional studies, much less conventional categories like right-left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, which really, first of all, there have been horrible regimes in every one of these categories, you know, repressive, violent. But secondly, if you really think about it, which we're trained not to do, they either ignore or marginalize or declare that they are to be subservient, nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. So 
I drew from a much larger database that includes the whole of humanity, the whole of our history, including our prehistory, which we are told false stories about, which are slowly being corrected. And yes, the whole of our lives, including where we all live, in our family and other intimate relations, which fast forward, my last book, Nurturing Our Humanity, really verifies these findings that it's important to take women and children in our early years and gender into account based on findings from neuroscience. So this has been a long work of expanding consciousness, lots of research, mm -hmm. but basically the chalice and the blade, which is, as you know, now in its something like its 57th U.S. printing and about 30 foreign editions, is still as relevant today as it was when it was first published. It really is. And part of that is because the classic or official Western history we're taught is still very much taught in the same mold. You want to say patriarchal mold, but you make a point, first of all, in Chalice and the Blade, to start history much before. And yes. we're essentially taught that history class or philosophy classes were taught that civilization starts with Greece and falls with Rome, or and uh, that's not the case. Very definitely. The recent findings, of course, trace humans on this earth way, way back. But we know now, and there are lots of books coming out, but they're very fragmenting still in their approach because they lack the frame of what I call the partnership domination social scale. What happened in this research, let me backtrack for a moment, is that by drawing on this larger database, I began to see patterns. And these patterns kept repeating themselves cross-culturally, transhistorically, going way back into prehistory, actually. And there are patterns in which actually the status of women and of children is to which it is central, rather than, I mean, we, we're taught, for example, that gender, that's just a women's issue, or maybe today, a men's issue. No, it's a key social and economic organizing principle of in-group versus out-group, where difference, starting with the difference in form in our species between female and male, is really equated with ranking, with domination, with superiority or inferiority with being served or serving. And it's not coincidental that our regimes, like in the Middle East today, where women are really rigidly dominated, that these are also regimes that are very much into in-group versus out-group thinking. And the out-group can be a different religious sect, like Shia versus Sunni, or Sunni versus Shia, it can be 
the dehumanizing of Jews or of non-Muslims. It goes along with the subordination of women. And until we learn, which is very difficult because our education is so siloed, it's so fragmented. So we have to really take a step back and connect the dots. And you cannot connect the dots without a frame. And that frame is really what I now call the partnership domination social scale. And we need to look at society and at human development through the lens of what I call the partnership domination biocultural lens. I want to dig into that a whole lot more, but I wanted to, before that, talk about this model was not always what we had. So at some point, there was a takeover, if you can kind of take us through that part of our story. Yes, I think that we have to really have a more complete and, yes, radically different picture of our past, our present, and the possibilities for our future. And they all go together. I mean, we're told false stories like original sin or selfish genes, and they fight each other, but it's the same story, isn't it? We are bad we have to be rigidly controlled from the top. And then we have these stories, of course, blaming Eve, woman, I mean, it's brilliant, or Pandora, for nothing less than all of men's ills. I mean, that story is a classic domination story. And we really uh, cannot free ourselves from it until we step back and we say, well, what purpose does that story serve? And of course, it serves the purpose of maintaining a core component, a core pillar of what I call domination systems, which is really these rigid gender stereotypes. But you have to have rigid gender stereotypes if you're going to rank one masculinity quote over Another, quote, femininity. And unfortunately, and this is the sadness, not only does this ranking perpetuate and solidify a worldview of in-group versus out-group thinking, which dehumanizes the other, you know, like Eve is dehumanized, like woman is dehumanized, but it also prevents us from seeing that the only alternatives we have are not just dominating or being dominated, but actually that there is a partnership alternative. And that, to get to your question finally, for millennia in human history, human cultures oriented more to the partnership rather than the domination side of this continuum. And it's always a continuum. You know, no society is a pure partnership or domination society, but the degree to which this orientation exists affects everything in our lives, from our childhood to our gender relations. It's so interesting to me how we have really, well, I call it the domination trance. 
And the good news is that a lot of people are waking up from it. But the bad news is that we're all over the place. Whereas all the movements, really, environmental movement, what does it challenge? It challenges our once hallowed conquest and domination of nature. If, if you look at modern history, this period of disequilibrium, you see that all of these progressive social movements have challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination, but you don't see it without a frame. You know, the Enlightenment challenged the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to and nobles, you know, so-called nobles. I mean, they were thugs, right, to rule over the people below them, so to speak. The abolitionists, the civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movements today challenge, again, the so-called divinely ordained rate of a, quote, superior race to rule over inferior ones. The uh, feminist, the women's movement, challenge mm-hmm. of the so-called divinely, I mean, everything is divinely ordained, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, ordained right of men to rule over the women and children in the, quote, castles, you know, a military metaphor of their home. All the way, as I said, to the environmental movement, challenging our once hallowed, and, you know, this is it, right? Our conquest and domination of nature, which at our level of population, which is built into domination systems. And yes, our high technology is about to do us in if we don't change. And it isn't so obvious to people, unfortunately, that we have to unite these movements. We have to work together. And that, yes, gender, childhood, economics, and that takes us to the hidden system of gendered values, right? That I write about in my book on economics, the real wealth of nations, and of course, story and language. We have to focus on those. We need both short-term tactics and long-term strategies. Well, part of it ought to be that we learn a little bit better what our actual history is, which you talk about in in The Chalice and the Blade, that there was an actual historical event that overtook societies in Europe and Asia that were more egalitarian equalitarian, the partnership model, like you call it. And it was overtaken by violent hordes of horsemen, really. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. I mean, that those were the advanced weapons, if you will, the yeah. man on the horse. DNA studies are actually showing that there were whole populations that were wiped out in the shift from partnership to domination. It's fascinating because it does require a re-evaluation of what happened in our prehistory, at least in the areas where there are DNA studies, it's very clear. Yeah, that we can actually see uh, societies that were replaced. Yes. Or their rather their male DNA was replaced. Well, yes, because women and some children were simply 
taken hostage, captive. Yeah. And unfortunately, the shift has to be global. And this is the problem. Because what happens, we see it that even those societies that survived themselves became oriented to the domination side. Maybe not as much. And we see it today in the garrison state of Israel. You know, I, I mean, this is, this comes home to me. I read a story of a young woman who said it was so clear she hid in a bramble bush and wasn't killed, that these people do not see us as human. There it is, you know, the dehumanization, the in-group versus out-group thinking, so they could kill all of these young people who just really, at this festival, wanted to have a good time and to live and to let live. And even this woman, strangely and marvelously, said, well, we have to look at this with love and how difficult that is in these circumstances. Because love is in the domination systems coded feminine, right? And despised and to be controlled. And in rigid domination societies, men can't demonstrate love. It's fascinating. The fear of pain is what holds domination systems together. And sharing pleasure, food, sex, love, connection, caring connection, which we humans yearn for. So that is characteristic of partnership systems. And we really, as humans, have this built-in need for this. But we become traumatized in families, economically, et cetera, racially, and we lose part of our humanity. And this is especially true of men because of male socialization. But women also support this. So this is really not an issue of women against men or men against women. I mean, I always say the alternative to patriarchy is not matriarchy. It's a partnership society. We are still in this because it's been perpetuated for so long. And you do talk about the sort of replication process that takes place. Yes. Well, I'll start with some questions in my childhood because I was a very curious child. And, you know, in the Bible, it says that henceforth, woman is to be dominated by man, right? To be subservient. And I always wanted to know... What was it like before the henceforth? But nobody wanted to talk about that. And I also wanted to know, why would a woman, Eve, ask advice from a snake? And of course, if you look, if you step back and forget about these old categories, ancient, modern, uh, whatever, even in already times that oriented very much to the domination side, Greek times, ancient Greece, that the snake, a python, it was a symbol of oracular prophecy. So I couldn't answer these questions until I really did this research. And frankly, I when I first started to see what had happened, I really was stunned. And But then it was very empowering, too, 
Because if it hasn't always been that way, it means that we can, not to go back to the good old days, quote unquote, but to see what the configuration is of domination and partnership systems. So that that is very interesting what you do in the chalice and the blade in that you use religion, the Bible specifically, and myths to kind of decode some of these old stories. And you write about the meaning of Snake and Eve, like what you just talked about, but you also talk about the absence of goddesses in all of our major religion and what that means. It's so important that we realize that the divine feminine, you know, yes, in the form of an anthropomorphic form of the goddess, was very interesting. If you look at the cover of the chalice and the blade, the goddess is a bird goddess. She's phallic in shape, has breasts, and has the beak of a bird. So what does it speak of? It speaks of interconnection, doesn't it? And the thing, fast, really fast forward, we are now learning that interconnection from physics, we're beginning to understand that it's really built into the cosmos. And it certainly is built into us, this yearning for caring connection, which is impossible, or at least very, very difficult in domination systems, because it's considered feminine and real men. They do get emotions, by the way. They get contempt and anger, which are very appropriate only for those who dominate. They don't get the soft emotions of empathy, of caring. I mean, how can you do these horrible things like the Holocaust unless part of you has been deadened? And that is what happens in domination systems. Yeah, where one part of humanity puts themselves above another part of humanity. And where women, the other, right, accept that. And they accept it through trauma, frankly. But everybody accepts it through trauma. I mean, my thinking has obviously moved from trying to understand how did we get to this crazy place? Well, what do we do? So I wrote a book on education, Tomorrow's Children, a book on economics, on the real wealth of nations. And my last book, as I said, is Nurturing Our Humanity. And that ends with these four cornerstones, which are really are so clear. I mean, you know, for example, that Putin, he radically reduced the penalty for family violence so that if you hurt or kill a stranger, your penalty is much more than if you hurt or kill a child, a woman, a man in your family. Why? Because Putin gets the relationship that neuroscience shows, I mean, really, between a rigidly authoritarian, male-dominated, highly punitive, often violent family, and that kind of a state where you are dependent on those on top and identify with them. This is the tragedy that we're facing in the world today. You talk about 
how feminism is kind of the one movement that provides like sort of a frontal challenge to the dominator model. What is it that makes this shift so hard to make in how we're conditioned? Well, look at the stories, look at the remissing. I have in The Chalice and the Blade, as you know, a number of chapters called Reality Stood on Its Head, and they're on remissing. So our job is to change stories. That's really essential. And what you're doing, of course, is helping people to wake up from a domination trance. There are many feminisms. The ones that the media picks up on, of course, are the so-called man-hating ones, but they're a very small minority. But this said, we unfortunately do fight each other. And that's not what it's about. It's changing the system. And changing childhood and family is vital. Changing the gender stereotypes, all of which is happening, but in bits and pieces, and it's still, we're still taught, oh, well, that's just an ancillary issue. No, it's a central issue to change, to shifting from the domination model that we've inherited. Look, all the categories we have came from more rigid domination times. And we have to understand that. And certainly blaming our parents isn't the way to go because they were just replicating what they were indoctrinated with. I mean, I get so much mail from people, women and men, saying that how empowering it is to have this frame. Because feminism, I mean, I'm a feminist, obviously, and part of the reason I focused on gender was because I had woken up and realized that, you know, I used to think it was me that was the problem. I Somehow I didn't fit, but no, because I shared these problems with thousands of other women who were also waking up from the domination trance. And that was huge in my intellectual and emotional development, that there's a lot of work to be done. And like the young woman who hid in the bramble bush Mm -hmm. And she's so much in my mind because I read about her story today in the newspaper. And with all of that she went through, she maintained her lovingness and her understanding that, yes, these men did not see these Jewish people as human. But why would they if they're taught in their schools in the Gaza Strip that Jews are pigs and dogs? I mean, even being that cruel to pigs and dogs, it offends, really, if you have any empathy. Yeah, you talk about this too. The dominator model isn't really sustainable. Well, that's the problem that we're facing today as a species. But notice, people who are really stuck in the domination mind fog, they are in denial about climate change, about election results, about COVID-19. But denial starts in childhood. And this is something I deal with in 
my book in nurturing our humanity. As I said, I mean, I've, I've advanced in my thinking to what do we do to change this? And as I repeat again and again, yes, we need short-term tactics. We see a lot of that, but we also need long-term strategies focusing on these four cornerstones of childhood and family, of gender, of economics, when the fourth, of course, is story and language. But when I first wrote The Real Wealth of Nations, and the subtitle is Creating a Caring Economics, just putting caring and economics in the same sentence was a big thing. Today, you know, all these people are hypocritically or not talking about caring. I mean, at least that is changing. But we need to change the rules of the game. And that's what really the real wealth of nations is about. It, it can be done. I mean, corporations, after all, uh, have charters. And we can change those charters. We can reward the kinds of activities that help us move towards the partnership side. And we can actually make it costly to be dominators. So we can use the present reward system in a different way. I mean, Biden, for example, his idea of really abolishing these tax havens globally is essential because otherwise you just have these people taking their money and going to wherever, and that won't work. It has to be a global thing, but we have to have the will. You have to understand what our real alternatives are. Yes, so true. And you talk about how differently we still are conditioned in terms of, you know, male psychology and female psychology. And I think about that often, how differently women are conditioned to care for others almost at the expense of themselves, and men are very much conditioned to be selfish. What do you think about that? I think, again, that's beginning to change in some subgroups, at least. That is a very healthy... I mean, look, think of all the men who are today doing fathering the way that once was really just mothering, you know, diapering babies, feeding babies. I mean, that's caring behavior. I think it's a spiritual change, too, because for me, spirituality is putting love into action. And it is something that, strangely, is at the core of our religious scriptures. And then there's this domination overlay. And one of the projects I so want are to have scholars from all the world's religious traditions come together and identify the partnership elements and the domination elements, and then go further and show how the domination elements were superimposed. It's like a beautiful painting that's been painted over, you know? But part of it is that unless you separate the scriptures into the core partnership elements, which are very ancient, and the domination overlay you can find all kinds of justification for all kinds of behavior. You talk a lot about that, how the Bible has that you can detect these like older layers of a caring culture underneath the dominator culture. 
and you talk a little bit about how Jesus and what he preached and what he spoke about was rebellious in his time. Well, if you look at the Gnostic Gospels, for example, and they're there, and they're they're older, actually, than the Christian Gospels in the Bible. And they talk of Jesus and Mary Magdalene as having been a couple modeling partnership that in some of these early communities, they were Jewish communities, of course, the early Christians, there was a veneration of God as mother. And you know, it's not coincidental that all over the world, Mary, the mother of God, is who people pray to. But it's it's really so characteristic of domination mythology that here you have in Christianity a holy family in which only the males, the father and the son, are divine, and the only woman in this holy family is mortal. Well, of course, I mean, it's, it's the goddess of old, demoted, isn't it? And it's up to us to reconstitute that family. And there are Christians who are doing this. And that is, again, part of the movement to partnership. But those who really stick to a literal <laughs> interpretation of every word in the Quran, in the Bible, in Hindu scripture, etc., etc., are stuck in this nomination trance. So we need tools. And we do, at the center, we have for years been working on metrics, new metrics, the social wealth economic indicators, showing the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. We also have another tool at the center, which I highly recommend, which is a sort of a self-assessment tool, because we all have really internalized, in part, whether we think of ourselves as progressive or not, well, among other things, this hidden system of gendered values, you know, in which somehow there's enough money for prisons, you know, that's the male, punitive male head of household, right? Or for wars. But somehow there isn't enough money to care for children, feed children, to nurture. I mean, this women's work, right? It's so clear, isn't it? It's almost like those values are ghettoized into, like it's okay for women to care about those things as long as it stays with women and don't spread. Well, if you think of both capitalist and socialist theory, they came out of the 1700s and the early industrial times. But not only that, while both Marx and Smith challenged some domination traditions, there's no question, they left intact this gendered system of values. So for both, first of all, for both in socialist and capitalist theory, there is nothing about caring for nature. I mean, nature is just there to be exploited. But not only that, and it goes to your point, uh, Ellie, it, it's, it's so clear that for them, 
the work of caring for people starting at birth was to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. That's perpetuated by GDP and GNP, isn't it? Because they called it just reproductive, and that's still taught in our business and economic schools, rather than productive. And that's a crazy distinction in this monetized age. I mean, I've had conversations with economists, and they say, well, that work is supposed to be done for free out of love. And I say, really, that's easy for you to say, but how about the fact that worldwide women and children are the poorest of the poor and the mass of the poor because of this really crazy economic system that simply does not reward the life-sustaining sector of the household, nor does it reward the life-sustaining sector of the natural economy, by the way. I mean, think about trees. They're not part of GDP. Only when they're dead, a log, are they part of GDP. I mean, what, what kind of system is this? It's reality stood on its head, and it's That's our right. job, every last one of us. I think that we have to step back. We have to start reading. We have to start talking. I would really suggest that people start book clubs using these books and using other writings, but start with these books that I've really written over the span of about it's almost 40 years now. And I completely agree with you that we need to start talking as opposed to sitting behind our screens. Like we yes. need to be in conversation. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the regression today is violent. There's no question about it. But we have to change the norm because these people are trying to pull the norm back to more rigid domination times. And all of us who want a better world, a better life, are trying to change the norms. It's all about values, because values inform structures and institutions from the family to education to religion to politics to economics to technology. Oh, I, I started to tell you about this other tool that we have. It's the Partnership Toolkit. It's based very much on the uh, four cornerstones plus one more, sort of showing a, a gestalt of the contrast of the two models. Tell me a little bit more about it. Well, it really helps people to see where they are on this partnership domination social scale, where their families are, where their organization is. And it's all the way from whether linking or ranking is the main mindset, whether it's hierarchies of actualization, because we need new words, versus hierarchies of domination. We know what hierarchies of domination are. You better obey or else, you know, it's going to be a lot of pain, even death in a rigid domination system. But then it goes on to story and language, because that's so fundamental, starting with stories about human nature. Where are we here? What do we believe? What does our family believe? What does our organization believe? Do you see what I mean? We also talk about gender. I mean, what have we internalized about gender? And what have we internalized about childhood 
and family. What is our family structure? It's kind of a way of unearthing. It's really wonderful how many young people and older people too are changing their family structure. But these are partnership trends. And then there are those who are trying to pull us behind, who are going to impose their values. The toolkit really provides people with this frame of the partnership domination scale, of our prehistory, of our history, as succinctly as possible. It is hugely helpful to think of these in terms of living systems. Yes. Which is your whole pioneering work. It's so easy to get caught up in isms and, uh, you know, sides of politics, as you say, and dividing ourselves, but really it's about systems. And it's uh, seeing the commonalities, whether they're religious or secular, Stalin's former Soviet Union, like the Taliban or ISIS, I mean, these, or Khomeini's Iran. I mean, you, you see the configuration writ large and not coincidentally gender. Yes. Hi. And we have to stop calling these conservative. They're dominator regimes. I mean, what language are you using? Absolutely. You talk about how we have, since prehistory, essentially, that we've gone through these alternating periods where, you know, you have a rise of or bubbling up of the caring model or partnership model, and then you have a regression towards a dominator model. And once you, I feel like once you see that, you look at history in a whole different way. And you can also see that really, as I said, the struggle for our future is not between right and left, religious and secular, Eastern and Western, capitalist and socialist. These are distractions. It's between the domination and the partnership configurations. And yes, gender, childhood and family, economics, what do we reward? What are our metrics? And of course, story and language. And we've got ways to go. It is not going to be an easy thing. And I'm afraid that we face some very difficult times if we are to survive. As you have said, the domination model is not sustainable. And that's what we're seeing all over the world today, whether it's the use of nuclear weapons, you know, the power of total destruction, once only, not coincidentally, believed to be in the hands of an all-powerful and all-knowing male deity. We have it now, whether it's climate change, I mean, yes, industrial technologies have helped some people, but because of overpopulation, which is denying women any life options, much less family planning, but I mean, you get your status from being the mother of a boy in a rigid domination system. And you're going to keep trying to have a boy. You're going to have tons of children. The people who are pushing us back are much more concerned with life before we're born and after we die. 
than with what happens here. I mean, it is really pathological, frankly. You've said that it's a model that venerates taking of life rather than giving of life. Absolutely. And the church, which only venerates the male as divine. I mean, the whole thing, once you sort of wake up from the domination trance, is a little ludicrous, but that doesn't change its power. Yeah. So we all first need to really know that there is an alternative, but we cannot see it through the lenses of the conventional that we have conventionally been offered. You also talk about how the dominator model kind of kills creativity or kills culture. And then the inverse, that the partnership model really stimulates culture and creativity. Well, until quite recently, if you look at the values of the creative man, the artist, he was considered a sissy, right? Effeminate. And now we do value, but we value creativity that maintains the system. And this is really very narrow. I mean, can we really say that the Nazis were creative in using gas chambers to murder? I mean, that's a creative use. No, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think that's creative. I think that's just innovative. Anyway, it's a whole process and it's going to take all of us really to change the system. But it has to change if we are to survive and thrive. What is your outlook at this stage in your life and after having thought and written so much? People ask me, am I optimistic or pessimistic? And I am neither. I mean, I think it really, what happens depends on us and on how quickly we wake up from the domination trance and how quickly we change the rules of the game in families, in gender, economics, and change our stories and our language. And it can be done. You know, it happened once before. We can do it again. I feel like it's happened many times before, but somehow the dominator model keeps crushing it. It has happened throughout even history. But all of us yearn for something better. And that's, as Margaret Mead said, everything from child labor laws. I mean, you name it. It was done by a small group of women and men and who were usually unpopular. And so let's keep that in mind. We have the power to change things. Thank you for giving me your time today. I really, really appreciate it and love talking to you. Well, I thank you so much. Okay. Take care. You too. Keep up your important work. Thank you. Since we recorded this interview, as you all know, Israel began a relentless bombing campaign of Gaza, killing over 10,000 Palestinians, and every day a higher number emerges. Horrific stories and images of torn apart humans, traumatized bodies and souls, hordes of terrified people trying to escape death 
and suffering are coming through our screens. I'm not going to make any statements regarding the morality of either side other than I condemn all the violence, full stop. But beyond that, I feel that we are watching yet another spectacular failure. Certainly a failure on the part of world leaders, but a failure of imagination. A failure to create any other solution but to bomb, to murder more. A failure to imagine any path other than more violence. Revenge upon revenge upon revenge. I'm reminded of a previous episode with Heide Gutner Abendroff where she talks about peace skills, that peace is something you must actively cultivate, build, and maintain. Rihanna Eisler was born into a horror just as unimaginable as the one taking place in Israel-Palestine right now. But instead of spending her life plotting revenge... She spent her life imagining a world in which humans actively build a sustainable peace. She's researched, theorized, and built new models for us, giving us a clear roadmap out of the endless cycles of domination and violence. My wish is for us to make use of those maps. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. Mm-hmm.